Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Good morning. It's great to see all of you here and those of you that are online with us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and be open up to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Uh, as we continue our series on cadence, and uh, this kind of the, the subtitle of the series is Staying in Step with the Spirit of God. And, you know, we believe that God's given us a, a pretty clear vision. We call it Vision 2025. And in order for us to even have a, a prayer to accomplish that vision, we've got to be the revived people of Christ. And we've got to be walking in step with the Spirit of God and with one another to move forward together. We've talked about the, the image of like a, an army unit or a, a, you know, a musical marching band and how critical it is that everyone who's moving moves in the same step. If you get one person out of step, it's pretty, it's pretty catastrophic and hilarious. You know what could happen, right, when that takes place. But in the, in the body of Christ, when one person gets out of step, it's, it's, it can be pretty chaotic, but not hilarious, right? But it's very important for us to move forward together in step. And so we've been looking at in this series, uh, you kind of really using Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 is kind of our key verse for the whole series. When Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The importance for us to be walking together in the Spirit. And so where we've been in this series, this series is really looking at the nine different traits or qualities uh, of, a, of a person, of an individual who is truly born again, who is truly living out the spirit-filled life and what that looks like. So we've looked at the pursuit of learning the Word of God. That was week one. We looked at the importance of praying in the Spirit. That was week two. We, we looked at the importance of going and sharing uh, the gospel and their testimony with others. Uh, we looked at the importance of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Last week, we looked at the importance of fellowship, which we, we kind of clarified it really means partnership. Uh, with God in partnership together as we live out the one another's. Well, that brings us to today the sixth uh, installment of Cadence. And today we're talking about the importance of investing. And I don't mean financially, I mean relationally. Investing in intentional disciple making. Uh, you know, David Platt just kind of shared a little bit in the video from the Great Commission. We're going to look at that some more uh, this morning. But the importance of, of pouring into someone else's life. So today we're going to begin by looking at a, a young man in the New Testament named John Mark. He's pretty, he's kind of common, but not super common. Some of you have heard about him, some of you maybe not. He actually writes the Gospel of Mark, um, but we don't hear just a whole lot about him personally throughout the New Testament, just little snippets. We're going to piecemeal this together because what we see here is something pretty incredible happens in John Mark's life. So the first time we see John Mark, he, uh, he's not actually mentioned and Scholars aren't 100% sure that it's really him, but we think it is. That's in the Gospel of Mark. The scene is Jesus is being arrested, and it's kind of chaotic. And the disciples are, are scared, they're nervous, they're terrified. They begin running. You know, Peter's the only one that kind of hangs in there. And Peter, when the, when the battalion of soldiers come to arrest Jesus, P Peter pulls out his, his sword. It says sword. It's actually the word for dagger. So he pulls out his little knife, you know, to take on 500 soldiers. I mean, who loves Peter? I, mean, I just love that guy, right? So Peter pulls out his little short stick to take on 500 soldiers. He takes a big swing. He misses and hits the ear of a guy, cuts the ear off. Jesus rebukes and says, Peter, don't you know those who live by the sword will die by the sword? He, he heals the guy's ear, and, you know, he goes on to be arrested, and we know how that, how that historical account goes. But the interesting part is, embedded in that narrative in the Gospel of Mark, 
It tells how scared all the disciples were. And it says, and one young man, doesn't name him, was so terrified that when the soldiers grabbed him, he ran out of his clothes. The Bible includes that. We believe that's John Mark. That's also a great testimony to the authenticity of Scripture because, you know, if you were just making this up and I was making this up about myself, I would leave that detail out, right? But not, no, that's why it's in the Scripture, right? That's the kind of the first time we see him. The next time comes along, and it's in, it's in the book of Acts chapter 12, and it simply says this. So you fast forward. So this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, 50 days after that, the Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers, um, and they begin to preach in other languages. And Acts 2 tells about how people are there, hear the gospel being preached in their own language, and 3,000 people are saved that day. The church goes on, and it grows, and it multiplies. Persecution begins. And then here in Acts chapter 12, we see that Herod has just executed the first apostle, James, the brother of John, was run through with a sword. And so then Peter and John are arrested. And so while they're arrested, there's this group of believers that are gathered in a house praying. They're praying for Peter. They're praying for John. And all of a sudden, incredible things happen. Peter is miraculously released from prison. God just intervenes and acts supernaturally. So Peter says, came to himself and said, now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected And so when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So all this praying was happening in John Mark's house. Now, this is a pretty powerful yet another funny story. So Peter, they've been praying for Peter. Peter miraculously released. He shows up to the house and he knocks on the door. And the Bible here says that this young woman named Rhoda, who was a servant there, answers the door. And she says, it's Peter. And they've been praying for Peter to get out of prison. And he's there. So what do you think she does? She slams the door in his face. And she runs back in and says, hey, Peter's outside. Well, what are you doing leaving outside? Bring him in. You know, it's a funny story. But anyway, that happens in John Mark's house. So pretty cool. So uh, Peter and also we see Barnabas and Saul, which is about to become Paul. They're hanging out there as well. And at the end of this chapter, something kind of interesting happens here with John Mark. Barnabas and Saul, they leave Jerusalem. They're going to head up to Antioch to begin a relief mission. And who do they take with them? John Mark. Kind of cool. So as you read through Acts, you get to chapter 13. Barnabas and Paul are commissioned by the church and sent on the very first missionary journey. And guess who they take with them? John Mark. So John Mark's along for the ride on this very first missionary journey. I mean, he's watching as Paul and Barnabas share the gospel. People are getting saved, and Paul and Barnabas lead and kind of organize churches in these towns that they're visiting. But then something happens, and we're not sure what takes place. We don't know what happened with John Mark. We don't know if he gets homesick or if he's scared, if he's tired, or if he gets sick. We're not, we're not sure. But he decides it's time to go home. So John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas to go home. Let's see how that goes. So we're going to be, this morning, starting off in Acts chapter 15. Going to read verses 36 through 40. So if you could please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 15, 36. Well, after some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and let's visit the brothers in every town where we have preached the message of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. 
but Paul did not think it appropriate to take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. And then Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers. Hmm, let's pray. Well, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful that you have used people in our lives to be so intentional, to invest in us, to help us to be where we're at today. But God, I just pray that you would use this time we spend together and with you in this text and others. You would stir us to be more intentional ourselves to pour into others. Because God is going to see with John Mark, it makes all the difference in the world. So Lord, use this time for your glory as you, we strive to seek you and empowering, equipping us and making disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So kind of an interesting deal here. So there was such a sharp disagreement, right? Now, Paul and Barnabas, they weren't just mere acquaintances. If you go back and you kind of look at the story, the history of it, when Paul is converted to Christ, when Paul trusts in Christ, it is a radical transformation. Paul had been one of the leaders of hunting down Christians, persecuting them, imprisoning them, even suggested killing them. So when Paul is saved, he comes into the church, and all of a sudden the believers are facing one of their main persecutors. A lot of them are suspicious, as I'm sure a lot of us would be. Like, what's really going on here? Paul's really just trying to get on the inside to find out where we are and help him just hunt us down more easily. You know, there's all these conspiracy theories going on. But Barnabas is the guy that took Paul under his wing, that trusted Paul, believed in Paul, encouraged Paul, probably even discipled Paul some. Barnabas was that guy. Barnabas is the encourager, right? And so for them, for them to have this sharp disagreement was no small thing. But in the sovereignty of God, God used it to make what was one missionary journey become two, doubling the gospel efforts. And plus, as we'll see, God's also going to use his time for John Mark. So Paul had kind of given up on John Mark. But here's what we see kind of at the end of the story. And this is kind of where we're heading. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's very last letter. He's on death row. He's awaiting public execution, which we know happens at the hand of the Emperor Nero, where Paul is beheaded because he will not recant his faith in Christ. His last letter, he says this, Only Luke is with me, but bring Mark. He is useful to me in the ministry. That's one of those little parts of the verse when we're just reading through on our Bible study plans. You know, we just read right over that, right? Not a big deal, just yada yada, names, okay, here we go. Go on to the next verse, the next book. But man, it is so profound. What happened with John Mark? What happened to take him where Paul was done with him to years later, oh, bring Mark. Send Mark, he is so useful to me. I'll tell you what happened. Barnabas happened. Barnabas investing his life into John Mark. And we know some others did too. Peter invested some in Mark and others. But these guys who intentionally invested their life in a young man who had quit, who had abandoned, who had betrayed his company, so to speak, continued to encourage, continued to pour into this young man, John Mark, to where he is useful to the Apostle Paul. 
Now, not many guys' names are mentioned in the Bible in a positive way by Paul at the end of his life. A lot of guys had to abandon the faith, but not Mark. Because he had been invested into and was walking strongly with the Lord. Barnabas. Why? Because Barnabas was carrying out this great commission that Jesus gave the disciples just before Barnabas had met, had become a believer or was really following Jesus. Jesus had given this commandment, this commission to the disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is our commission. So as we talk about, you know, making disciples and as we talk about investing our lives, let's just, let's just look at some very core foundational questions to consider. These are so foundational that are questions we assume we know the answer to and we just kind of keep going. But because we don't address these core foundational questions and have common answers, right, we can be moving in different directions. So this would be a basic question. What is a disciple? Now, if I probably asked all of you to write down an answer to that, might get some similarities, but some of you might say something like, well, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, or a disciple is a believer in Jesus, or some of you could say a disciple is a student or a learner. That's more of the Webster's Dictionary version of what a disciple is, right? Kind of going to be similar, but still kind of all over the place, right? Well, here's the thing. Um, there used to be a Chrysler automotive plant here in the area that, you know, some of our retired people used to work at. And what if Lee Iacocca, who back in the day was the CEO, just came and said, hey, I want you to make an automobile. Boy, there's a lot of different kinds of automobiles out there, aren't there? You know, so you get, you get Steve, and Steve's thinking kind of concept of the, the convertible sports car, right? You get... You get Brian Davidson, he's always thinking minivan, right? So he's thinking minivan. They have a Chrysler minivan, by the way. It's pretty funny. So they're thinking minivan. So they have all these different people coming together to make this automobile, but they're thinking different specifics in their mind. Is that ever going to work out? No, they're going to be doing, they're going to be counterproductive, right? So here's what we're called to do. Whereas Chrysler was organized to make automobiles, that's their product, that's what they are to produce. We are called as the church to produce disciples, to bear fruit that are disciples. It's pretty important we know exactly what that disciple is, right? It's a foundational question. Another foundational question. Is there a distinction between a disciple and a believer? Is that synonymous? Or is there such thing as being a believer who's not yet a disciple? We'll talk about that. Another question. How do you know when a disciple is made? So let's say, you know, who, who all did I pick on? I picked on Steve and Brian and whoever else. So let's say they get together and they figure out exactly what they're going to make. How do they know when they're done making that Chrysler product? Well, when it's off the assembly line, they get in there and, they, and it starts and they drive off. They're done. How do we know when a disciple is made? How do we know when that's accomplished? That's an important question in this process of making disciples. And the last question, how do you make one of them? A disciple, figure out what it is, and then how do you make it? So that's what we're looking at today. This is what Barnabas did with John Mark, and so many of others have done through the history of the church. So let's just kind of look at the big thought this morning. A revived people invest their lives into others in order to make them into disciples who make disciples. 
So they're built into this is the ongoing DNA of multiplying disciples. That's what the early church was commanded to do, and that's what they did. That's why we are here today. That continues to be the commission that Jesus gives to us. So let's look at this process, the how. How do we make disciples? Well, first we want to go from unbeliever to believer, right? So the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go make disciples. So here, to go from unbeliever to believer is the process of evangelism. And we talked about this a few weeks ago with the go. But this is that moment when someone who hasn't trusted in Christ yet, that moment when they have not realized, they may have some kind of vague, obscure belief that there is a God, but this is that moment when the new birth happens. It's that moment in time when that person is born again. They recognize that God of the universe truly, deeply, individually loves them. That he's designed to forgive them of all of their sins, so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross in our place for that to be accomplished. And Jesus, God in the flesh, died in her place, but conquered death and rose again from the grave. And we just sang and worshiped him for that, amen? I mean, that, the resurrection is the, the critical event in the whole Christian experience because if Jesus had died for our sins but not rose again, we wouldn't be here today. But because he rose again, he demonstrated that he, is the, that he truly is God in the flesh and he truly did conquer our sin, freeing us from the bondage of death forever and ever. And when we recognize that and embrace Jesus as the Lord and Savior that he is, surrender our life to him and following him, repenting of our sins, turning, that means to turn away from sin and to pursue him. When that happens, we've gone from being an unbeliever to a believer, right? And that's that first step in this process. So Jesus, when he gives this great commission, as David Platt said, it's that go. It's that evangelize, share the gospel to help unbelievers become believers. That's the first step in making a process. But here's the thing. Evangelism is part of the disciple-making process. It's part of discipleship. So many times I've heard in Christian life, evangelism is one thing, discipleship is totally something different. No, evangelism is the first step of disciple-making. You can't be a disciple unless you're first evangelized. Amen? So it just makes sense. That's the process. So, we see here the go. That's where Jesus says, go make disciples. That going is that evangelism piece. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Secondly, it's to go from being a believer to a servant. All right, and here the process is establishing. This is from the, from the key word baptizing here in the Great Commission. Baptizing. So someone gets saved, you know, we've done outreach. You've, you've shared the gospel in the neighborhood or at work. You've led them to Christ. They've trusted in Jesus. They recognize that they have been born again and they're saved. Now what? Well, now we establish them in the church. We baptize them, right? And, you know, introducing them to the body of Christ and identifying with the body of Christ. We begin to establish them by, by helping them understand the core essentials of, of theology, of the Bible. Help them understand who God is and who they are and that they're supposed to be growing in this. A lot of times, I mean, this is so critical because so many times people get saved in the history of the American church, get saved, or they'll, they'll walk an aisle and say a prayer, but you never see them after that. There's no establishing. There's no rooting them. And if you go back to like Mark chapter 5, the, the parable of the soils, where Jesus said, you know, some seed is thrown in the rock, rocky soil, and it immediately springs up when it hears the gospel. It springs up with joy, but when adversity comes, it's 
quickly blown away because it has no root. It's not been established. We're going to establish new believers in the body of Christ. Help them to get into a connection group. Make sure they go through first steps. You know, get them beginning to understand that God has a plan for them. Grow toward that servant role. Jesus says this. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Part of us just growing in Christ, you know what the biggest part of that process is? Us becoming more humble, right? Us becoming more humble. So just remind your neighbor, turn to your neighbor and say, just humble yourself. Humble yourself. That's not fun to say. It's not fun words, right? Well, say, you ought to be proud of yourself. How about this? Humble yourself, right? That's the process of growing in Christ. Because the next, go- the next goal for us from going from new believer is to become servant. That's servant. Now, we're all called to serve. You know, we all have different things. In fact, here at Canaan, we use this acrostic called shape, finding your shape. And that's part of an intricate plan to, that, to, that God gives us to help you discover how, how do I serve? Where do I serve? You know, right now, we're, we're trying to plan on re, relaunching their children's ministries. And so a lot of you might be getting some phone calls the next week or so if you're, well, if you're ready to serve because we need servants, volunteers to make children's ministry happen. If, you, if you're interested or if you're feeling that nudge from the Spirit of God, which I pray in the name of Jesus right now, many of you are, you know, let us know, right? Because we're ready to, to kick that back off. Now that kids are back in school, it's just a good time to do that. So, but finding your shape. So that's what it, what's packed up into that. It's kind of an acrostic. The S stands for spiritual gifts. The, when you're saved, the moment you become that believer, you go from unbeliever to believer, right? The moment that happens, you're filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives you specific gifts. Now, here's some cool things about the gifts. No one has all the gifts, right? And there's not one gift that everybody has. There's diversity there. There's intentionality with that. That reminds us how interdependent we are upon one another and ultimately and completely dependent upon God that we are. So we need each other. So these spiritual gifts are valuable. Discovering what those are is part of you growing in your discipling process to know where God's called you to serve, right? Secondly is your heart. We call this passion. We've got a lot of passionate people in our church family, which is awesome because passionate people get things done, right? That's just bottom line. We can know what we're supposed to do, but until we have the passion to do it, it really doesn't happen, you know? So passionate people are critical. So if you're one of these passionate people where God's given you a passion, we're not talking about like evil, vile passions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God-given passions. If you have one, hey, pray, we praise God for you because you're the ones that make things happen. But there's God that gives those passions your, I'm sorry, a, I did that first service too. I'll skip the A. A, abilities, natural abilities. All of you have natural talents in something. We have musicians and singers. And man, we're blessed this morning. They just sounded phenomenal. We have people that are great building stuff, painting stuff, fixing stuff. People good with, you know, the natural talent of, of administrating, organizing. So critical. Then the P is your personality. Congratulations. Everyone here has a personality, Right? Now, some of you are very outgoing. You know, you kind of walk in and you light up a room. Others of you might not even know you're in the room because you're so quiet and meek. But God's given you the personality that you have for a very particular purpose. E is experiences. 
All of us have experiences. A lot of you have ministry experience. A lot of you have educational experience. A lot of you have successful experiences. All of us have hard experiences where we've experienced some tough stuff in life. You know, and there's a saying that I wholeheartedly agree in. It says, God never wastes a hurt. Never does. For his children, he allows us to go through some tough times only if he knows he can leverage it to make us more like Christ. Otherwise, he doesn't let it happen. You know, we see that all through Scripture. Like Romans 8 says, we know God works all things. Just say all things. All things together for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. And he goes on and says, for those whom he foreknew. So he knew you before time began. Foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's awesome. And it kind of goes perfectly with this verse right here, Ephesians 2.10. God's, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Some translation, they said he before, prepared for us before time began. So back here, when he foreknew us, before he had created us, right, he had already ordained good works for you and I to do specifically. So if you put all that together, what this means is back here, God already knew you, and so he's gonna create you in a way with spiritual gifts, with certain passions, with natural abilities, even with certain personalities, and even ordaining certain experiences so you can be able to accomplish those works he has for you to carry out. Is that not incredible? The specificity and intentionality, the love, the care that God has for you. No wonder David said, you know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Because you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It is so intricate, so lovingly designed, purposeful, intentional. You are you, not by accident. You are you by design, by the Lord. That's who you are. So the goal is to grow from believer to a servant where you're serving the Lord in a way in which you're shaped to honor him. Now, before we get to this next, here's where I believe we as the American church as a whole have stopped. We're like, let's, let's go share the gospel and see people get saved. Praise the Lord. Let's get them, become members of the church. Let's get them into small groups, Sunday school classes. Let's get them serving. Awesome. Once you're there, we've like, good, next. And we've missed the most important and the most difficult step. And that is this fourth step from servant to disciple maker. So in Jesus, in the Great Commission, he says the word, the process here is equipping, but he says the word teaching, right? Teaching them to observe everything. I've commanded you. So going, evangelism, baptizing, establishing, teaching is equipping. Equipping you to be disciple makers. Because the Great Commission is not just for a few. It's for all of us. All of us are called to make disciples. And that's not just the evangelism piece, right? That's the whole thing. We're called to evangelize, establish, equip. All three of those going together, that is this disciple-making process, is equipping. I mean, Paul says this in Ephesians. 
He says, he, being Christ, personally gave to the church some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? For the training or the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. It is our job, the leaders of the church, to equip you to do the disciple-making work of the church. That's what Paul tells Timothy. So Paul, again, at last letter, he's on death row. His last thoughts, his last encouragements, his last instructions to Timothy, who's kind of been his protege, his disciple. He says this, The things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, pass these on and trust these to reliable men who will be, also be qualified to teach others. So what you see is four generations of intentional investment in others' lives. You see, from Paul to Timothy, Timothy to reliable men and reliable men to others. Four generations. That intentionality. When I was a brand new cadet at West Point, summer of 1990, I've been there two weeks and it was rough. I mean, you wake up getting yelled at, and you're yelled at all day. You go to bed, you're getting yelled at. It's just, it was rotten. It was awful, right? You go to, you go to eat your meal, and you made just a few simple mistakes. You lose your meal for that day. So you, we lost 15, 20 pounds. We're, we're hungry. Been there two weeks. The second Sunday we were there, they brought us out to formation. They said, new cadets, today is the first day you get just a few hours to walk around campus and check out the different religious organizations that are here. So you get a few hours off. They kind of told us where to go for this. If you're a Catholic, you go over there. If you're Jewish, you go over there. If you're a Baptist, student union, you're going to go over there. My ears perked up because I grew up Baptist. Plus, I knew Baptist chicken. Give me some food, right? And I'm hungry. So all that was going on. Presbyterian, you know, had all the different stuff, right? So they said dismiss, so I need a beeline over here to the Baptist Student Union tent. And sure enough, we get there. Man, they had this huge table of fried chicken. It was great. But here I met this, this couple named Alton and Sherry Harp. And they had been the leaders of the Baptist Student Union at West Point for over three decades, right, at the time. So I always kid them. Oh, did you disciple MacArthur and those guys? No, you didn't. I was way before him. But, you know, it was kind of fun. But anyway, he'd been there a long time. So... They really poured into us, and, you know, that first, I walk up there, I've been yelled at for 24 hours a day for two weeks. First thing, Ms. Harp gave me a big hug and says, welcome, and just, oh, it was just great. It was like paradise on earth. So I spent my first two years there under their leadership, you know, and it was, just, it was good. Um, he was the pastor of the local Baptist church that I went to and all that sort of thing. But they retired at the end of my sophomore year. I was like, great. Well, then we get this guy named Bill. Bill was not a polished leader. He'd been a Marine. That's even worse. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a little joke there. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't articulate. He was not a great preacher. He wasn't, uh, orga- he wasn't organized. You know, he, he didn't meet a lot of the criteria that you would normally think of as a, as a leader of people. But Bill got there. And this time I was coming in my junior year. He says, Daniel, uh, let's get together and have lunch. Well, okay. So I showed up for lunch. We had a book. He gave me a book. He said, let's, let's get together for a while. Let's just go through this book together. I'd love just to 
walk with you through this and see, see how things were going. I was like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. So I went through this book. You know, it's called Experiencing God, you know, back in the day. So I went through that book, and man, it was, it was a powerful process. Um, just every week, we got together once a week, just went through that stuff, and he just poured into me. I didn't know he was, I just thought we, he liked me. I thought we were just going to have lunch together, you know. I just thought it was kind of a cool thing. I didn't know he was being intentional. I didn't know this was like a design thing that he was doing, right? He was just doing it. Well, into that year, find out five of my other buddies in BSU with me, he, he did the same thing with them. He was getting us ready to be the leaders our senior year of this Baptist Student Union. Through that year, God called me to ministry. God called another buddy of mine into vocational ministry. The other three, they really deepened their walk with Christ. So by the time our senior year came, we were ready. And we took some of these other younger guys through that stuff. It was just awesome. I had no idea what he was doing then. Looking back now, I'm like, man, he was doing this right here. He was making disciples. He was a disciple maker. He was being intentional. And you know, you look at, you look at how Jesus changed the world, right? And I've seen this comparison done. I should have had to, I should have had it on the screen, but you look at someone did this study. So let's say Billy Graham, of course he's passed away, but let's say Billy Graham back in the day, let's say he led a million people a year to Christ. Then over here, you got this other guy. We'll just say, I don't know, pick on somebody. See, Ed. So Ed is going to just invest in three people a year for the rest of his life. But then at the end of that three, in that year, that's three to invest in another three. Into that year, those nine invest in another three each. See how that goes? At 15 years, this side passes Billy Graham. How did Jesus do it? Jesus didn't. Win a million a year. Jesus chose 12 guys, and he poured himself into those 12 guys for three years. Those 12 guys, they emulated that. We see Paul. Paul disciples people like T Timothy and Silas. You know, you have Barnabas. He disciples Paul and John Mark. This is just what these guys and gals did. They practiced Jesus's, not only his theology, but his methodology as well. Today, here we are. And this morning, there's, there's church going on all over the planet because these 12 guys took the cue from Messiah, not only in what to do, but how to do it. They changed the world forever. So let's go back. Let's go back to our questions. So what is a disciple? You know, here we've formally defined it as someone who lives and loves like Jesus and pleads with others to do the same. You could also kind of take what we've talked about today. It's just someone who's been transformed from an unbeliever through the process to be a disciple maker. A disciple is someone who makes disciples. That's what a disciple is. Next question. Is there a distinction between a disciple and a convert and believer? There shouldn't be, but tragically there is. Again, how many of us know someone? It may be a family member. It might be a sibling, niece or nephew. could be a child or grandchild. That at one point in their life, they walked an aisle. They said a prayer. But there was never change. There was never any participation in the body of Christ. There's no passion for living for Jesus. That's not a disciple, right? So is there a difference? Yeah. I mean, 
people were gathered around Jesus, kind of going around with him as he was teaching. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus kind of brings it all to a point. He says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a difference. Jesus called him up to a, to a, a more committed level. Next question. Maybe. How do you know when a disciple is made? So you're poor and you're investing. How do you know when it's done? Well, as long as we're breathing, we're not done, right? We're continuing to grow, continuing to become more and more and more of a disciple. But just like the Chrysler plant, they knew when that van was made, when they could start it up and it would drive off in a good manner. How do you know when a disciple is made? When that person is in a disciple-maker role. Howard Hendricks, a great Baptist leader of the past, he says, discipleship is complete when the disciple becomes a discipler. Makes sense. When you're in that disciple-maker role, doesn't just roll off the tongue, that's when you know. And lastly, how do you make a disciple? That's what we talked about, by intentionally investing in people. So right now, I'll just encourage you, you know, Maybe you're feeling a prompting. I need to start investing in some people. Just write, write three names down and just start praying about these three people. Just write their names down. I don't see many pens yet. Go ahead. Get a pen. Write three names down. Just start praying through who could I intentionally invest in. Because here's the thing. You don't have to have a seminary degree to be a disciple maker. You just got to be a step or two further along in your journey than the person behind you. In fact, Usually that's even better. I don't know about you, but I remember having a college course. I had to take a class on energy conservation. Oh my, oh my goodness. Well, I get this, get this textbook, and it's written by a guy named Kenneth Weston. I look at my list of professors. My professor is Dr. Kenneth Weston. It's like, oh boy, I got the guy that wrote the textbook. So I come into class, and it was awful. He was so far ahead of where we were, right? He did not remember what it's like to be as ignorant as I am. <laughs> You know, and not know stuff. So he taught levels above me. And it was just so difficult. Whereas other professors I'd had, yeah, they were ahead of me, but not so far they forgot what it was like to be me. Those were amazing teachers. So sometimes someone's a little closer to where you are is more effective. So you don't have to have the degree. You don't have to have been a believer for decades to intentionally invest in someone. Just be following Jesus, being, growing yourself in the Lord and you're a qualified, called disciple maker. But follow this process. So as we close here, just want to kind of ask two questions. First question is, where are you in being discipled? Now, maybe there's some of you here, you're still in the unbeliever category. Um, maybe there's some of you that either here or watching, there's never been that moment yet when you've had this revelation that God is holy, but he loves me and he wants to save me. He died on the cross for me. He rose again from the grave and he wants to give me the new birth. You might be right there. What an exciting place to be. Because a lot of us remember that day, that day that I just had this overwhelming sense that 
I needed Christ, and I cried out to Christ. Like we sang about, I called out from the darkness, right? And he saved me, rescued me, making me part of his family forever, forgiving me of all of my sin forever, adopting me in the family, guaranteeing me a place with him in eternity. That I would no longer have to fear death. I'd no longer have to fear condemnation. And I would have genuine purpose for living. I mean, what a great, what a great deal, amen? Maybe you're just right there at that cusp of, of growing from unbeliever to believer. Or maybe you're, next, maybe you're a believer, maybe a new believer, maybe a believer a while, but you've never followed through with the establishing piece, getting baptized, becoming a member of the church family, plugging into a small group, you know, starting beginning to learn uh, the truth of Scripture about who God is and who you are and how we relate to God and what does it mean to follow God and, you know, how do we interact with the real world as Christians. All these things are part of that being established. Maybe some of you have established, but you're not yet serving. Maybe that's your next step. Just start serving. Again, we've got some children ministry stuff coming up. But just serving in general, serving here in the church, but also serving through the church. We have some great ministries that go on, you know, like Messaging a Meal to the Homeless. We have partnership with Oasis International that, that ministers to, to immigrants and refugees that, that find themselves here. And, you know, it's just, it's just so hard to be in America when you have no idea about America. It's just, it's just really hard. And this is a great ministry where they get, we get to talk about the gospel. And it's just incredible opportunity. So many of these missions ministries. Or is God saying to you today, yeah, you're serving, but I'm ready for you to make disciples. Are you ready to pray over those three names and seriously consider that God's calling you to do it? A lot of, it's, a lot of it can be scary. That's why I think the very last part of the Great Commission is probably the most important part where Jesus says, remember, I am with you always. Man, I just don't know if I can... I've got what it takes to invest in someone else. She said, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, mean, I just don't know if I could, I'm kind of scared to be in front of people. I don't know about getting baptized. No, I, I'm with you. I just, I don't know if I could, I don't have enough theology yet to, yeah, I'm with you. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? Following and trusting Jesus. It's not about following and trusting ourselves. We never get anywhere. But following and trusting Jesus. Are you trusting him today? Are you in that disciple-maker role yet? That's what it takes for us to live out Vision 2025. We've all got to be as many as possible in that fourth chair, that disciple-maker role. Let's all stand. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the people you put in my life like like Bill, like so many others. I remember as a kid going to Sunday school, Ms. Annie, just incredible godly lady who just poured her life into us as kids, just teaching us your word, loving us, encouraging us when tough times hit. Lord, she's just an incredible lady. Thank you for so many people like that you've placed in my life. Thank you for so many people that are like that here in this church already. But God, we know that we live in this just in this area of St. Louis where over half the people have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Lord, not only do they need your gospel to be saved, 
They need us to make them into disciples themselves, to start a a long-term revolution of disciple-making here in this area. So God, I just pray that you would move our hearts, get us on board with your great commission. That, Lord, not to make the mistake that so many American churches have made where we just stop at getting people to serve because there's one more most critical step where we invest in your precious people that you've created. Where we invest in those who are also fearfully and wonderfully made, filled with purpose and design, filled with your loving intentionality. But God, it's up to us to equip them, train them, to love them. So Lord, just stir our hearts this morning. I just pray, God, for all of us to just be humble before you right now and just honestly reflect on where are we in this process. That if, God, there are some here or watching online who are still in the unbeliever phase, that, God, you would rescue. That you would just overwhelm us with a sense of your presence, your goodness, your glory. And, God, just have us with this desire to awaken our soul, awaken our spirit to that we want to be part of your kingdom. That, Jesus, we need you. We're desperate for you. We cry out for you to save us. Lord, I pray that if some are here or watching that are in that spot, this is their moment. It's like Paul said, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Call out to Jesus, say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. You died in my place. Thank you. I trust you. I want to follow you for the rest of eternity. Lord, just awaken souls now. God, for others who are believers, God, maybe their next step is to be established get baptized and join the church family to to plug into a small group. God, I pray that you would give them the the urge, the, the passion, the want to, to follow through with that. God, for those who are ready to serve, just help them to plug in and to discover what their shape is so they can serve out of a, a unique gifting you've already given them. But God, right now, especially pray it would raise up many, many more disciple makers willing to invest in others like Bill invested in me. So Lord, stir our hearts. This world needs you so desperately. And in your sovereign wisdom, you've chosen us to be the solution to carry you relationally to others. So God, help us to do that obediently and effectively for your glory's sake in Jesus' name. Well, the altar's open as we sing. If you uh, need to get saved and give your life to Christ, what a great time to do it. You can either come forward or email us at info at canonstl.org. If you need to come and join the church family, it's a great time to do it. If you want to come and pray for your three, it's a great time to do it. Just respond to the way the Lord lays on your heart. The way that he sees fit to honor him as we respond and sing.